Isaiah 33, 5 and 6. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness, and he shall be the stability of your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Father, as we come to you, we acknowledge that we desperately need stability in our times. We seem to be living in a tumultuous era when things uh, seem to be spiraling out of control. And yet, Father, we know that you have complete control of all situations as you have had throughout all of history, that nothing is too difficult for you. And Father, we do count our many blessings, even as we sang this morning naming them one by one, uh, realizing that you have blessed us in so many ways, whatever may be the difficulties that are looming ahead of us and that some may be experiencing at this moment. Father, we give you honor and praise. We thank you for the hope that you've given us through Christ. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who confirms that hope, that he is the, the earnest, the down payment. And Father, we just pray that uh, you will be our strength through this day and through the days ahead. Bless now our study of your word. Encourage us, teach us, enlighten us, whatever our, our need may be, individually and collectively, we trust you to meet that need by the power of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's important for us to remember that the Holy Spirit is the one who has inspired all of Scripture, even 2 Samuel. And the 21st chapter of 2 Samuel, which we'll be looking at, begin to look at today, contains two unrelated accounts. These are of events that occurred in the reign of David. The first of these is recorded in, chap in verses 1 through 14, and we'll begin looking at those a little bit later. And, and it deals with national disobedience and the punishment that came because of that national disobedience. The second part of the chapter from verses 15 through, chapter, through verse 22 describes uh, a series of wars that occurred between Israel and Philistia. What's interesting is although these narratives come in, in chapter 21, which means obviously after chapter 20, and the events which describe the... Uh, the uh, Wait, what, do I, what do I call it? The rebellion, that's what a word I'm trying to think of. The rebellion of Absalom and the rebellion of Sheba. Even though the description comes later, it's very probable that the events we read about here occurred earlier. Again, reminding you that the Hebrews were never particularly concerned about chronology, about everything occurring in chronological order. That wasn't a big deal to them. That isn't the way Hebrews normally think. I'm sure modern Israelis do, but the ancient Hebrews didn't. And so that it would be seemingly to us out of sequence uh, was not the way they viewed it. I think it's important for us also to note that God never inspired biblical writers to write history solely for the sake of writing history. If you go back, for example, to ancient China, you'll discover there was a court historian hired and trained to write the history of each reign. Why? Just to have a chronology of the history of each reign. Partly also, of course, to make the emperor look good because obviously a historian who's writing his history while the emperor lives has to write a nice history 
Otherwise, he might only, not only lose his job, but his head as well. But, but God has never put anything in the Scripture here solely for amusement or, or, or just to uh, put something in some particular order. There is behind every single teaching, every, every single passage, deeper teachings embedded within the passage. God is the master teacher. He uses every trial, every tribulation, every temptation, every triumph that occurs in our lives to teach us how to live as His children. How else would we know how to live as His children if it weren't for the use of the application of His Word to, to the vicissitudes of life that we face from your providential care? We have some understanding of His power and of His imminence, of, of His real presence here with us. But those things don't really become experiential or validated to us until we experience them within the framework of the trials of life, right? It's when God works in, a, in an issue that the reality of what we read here is driven home to our hearts and we say, yeah, God really is here and He really is mine and He really is working on my behalf and He really does answer prayer. And this, this truth seems to come through this, this kind of epilogue to the book of 2 Samuel because as we look at these chapters, we're going to see the, the power of God demonstrated. Uh, these final four chapters record for us problems that David did not bring upon himself and problems that he did bring upon himself. And God doesn't necessarily distinguish between those. He is faithful even when we cause our problems as much as when we don't cause our problems. He, he will be faithful to us in either situation. God was found by David to be just. He found him to be merciful. He found him to be ever-present. He also found him to be omnipotent. And it was through famine, and we're going to be reading about famine in this chapter. It was through plagues. It was through war. It was through trials of all kinds that the goodness of God was permanently etched on the heart of David. And we can be so grateful for that because so much of the Psalms has been written by, by David. And most of them were written as a result of trials, tribulations, persecutions, these things that came into David's life. You and I all see a proliferation of books nowadays, don't we? Christian books. I mean, Christian books come out so fast that even if you wanted to read them all, you couldn't. Do you read them all? Can't. You can't, no. <laughs> Judy works over at uh, Reading Christian Supply, and, and she can't even read them all <laughs> as fast as they're coming out. And part of it is, of course, because people are responding to what God has done in their lives in the midst of difficult situations. And, and, and so they, they reflect on that and write on that and, and testify to His goodness and, and then share that with us. And in some cases, we find ourselves in accord with that person because we're going through a similar trial as that person may have gone through. So if David had not seen the grace and mercy of God in the midst of the storms of life, he probably would never have become the sweet psalmist of Israel, which is an actual quote from the 23rd chapter of 1 Samuel. These accounts 
are given to us so that you and I might be aware that as God's children, we may have to go through fiery trials. Now, what some person defines as fiery and what another person defines as fiery might be a little bit different. Now, some people have very low thresholds of pain and others have higher thresholds of pain. Some of us might just kind of go ding, 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 ding down through the passage of life and not even know we're in a trial or a tribulation. But most of us are aware that in the midst of it all, it is God who sustains us. He may not deliver us out of every trial and tribulation, but he will go through it with us. Just like, well, we always hear the example of the four in the fiery furnace. God didn't keep them out of the fiery furnace. He kept them alive in the fiery furnace. Whoa, you know. And that's what impacted Nebuchadnezzar. I threw these guys in there. Well, three he threw in, but then Jesus showed up, or you know, we believe that was Jesus in there. One looks like the Son of God, even Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged. And they're all walking around there in the fiery furnace. It was so hot that it killed the guys who threw, tried to throw them in. That's hot. And God was with them. He sustained them through that. What he does to sustain and deliver his children is powerfully portrayed for us in the 22nd chapter of 2 Samuel and over into the 23rd. And we'll be getting to those uh, passages shortly. But let's read today the first 10 verses of chapter 21 of 2 Samuel. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, meaning sequentially. And David sought the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, and the sons of Israel made a covenant with them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. Then David said to the Gibeonites, What should I do for you? How can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Then the Gibeonites said to him, We have no concern of silver or gold with, the, with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. He said, I will do for you whatever you say. So they said to the king, The man who consumed us and who planned to exterminate us from remaining within any border of Israel, let seven men from his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath of the Lord which was between them between Saul, David and Saul's son, Jonathan. So David took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, Armoni and Mephibosheth, whom she had borne to Saul, and five sons of Meriab, the daughter of Saul, whom she had borne to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite. Then he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the mountain before the Lord, so that the seven of them fell together, and they were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. There was a three-year drought. The three-year drought had brought a famine which was ravaging the land. You and I here in California can experience a three-year drought and be, you know, relatively minorly influenced by it. But you have to remember in those days there were no dams, no reservoirs to have reserves of water. There were no canals or pipelines to connect to distant sources of water. And there was no ability to dig deep and to strike 
aquifers that were down far under the ground. They were totally dependent upon the rain. The rain was absolutely essential. And what little water, of course, came in the snow on Mount Hermon and came down through the, uh, the Jordan River and so forth was useful to the local people, but even that certainly was low. And there was no way in those days to extract water from the Sea of Galilee, which certainly in a three-year drought would have fallen significantly, even as it has fallen in recent years in Israel. So the result of a drought was quick and serious in the land. It actually meant the difference between life and death for thousands of people. You and I have a tendency, and, and rightly so, I believe, to think of drought as a product of weather cycles. Uh, we hear about El Nino and La Nina and various other glitches that come along in the weather cycle. And the jet stream is there instead of here or whatever. And as a result, we don't get rain like we're supposed to get or wish we had. But here I think it is very clear from this passage that whatever mechanism God used, it was God who brought the drought. God interfered with the natural flow of things. And that, of course, isn't all that difficult to do because you have to remember that if you can look at this map over here, uh, this is Iceland here. And uh, up in this area here is where the major cyclones are generated that bring storms into Europe. It's like over here. We have what's called the, the Aleutian Low pressure zone, and that's what brings the storms in over here. They, they generate up here and swing in across here. And up here they generate and come in because the prevailing westerlies operate in all the mid-latitudes. So it blows them in this way. And so it's coming in this way. And way down here, you're on the very tail end down there. You're on the very outer edges of, of that system when you're clear down in the Mediterranean. That's why the Mediterranean is much drier than most of the rest of Europe. The Mediterranean climate is totally different, not totally, but significantly different from the climate of most of the rest of Europe. And, and so all it takes is a dislocation of that low pressure or the moving of those cyclones a little bit further to the north and there's no rain in Israel. So whatever God does, uh, I mean God doesn't even have to do that, He can just say no rain in Israel, whatever the systems do out there. But God brought drought to the land. And the reason He did it is He wanted the attention of the people. He wanted David to pay attention and the nation of Israel to pay attention because God said there's a barrier between you and me. And that barrier is gross sin that has been allowed to slip by and has been ignored for many years. There's been no confession and there's been no atonement. The scripture makes two things clear here, I think, by interpretation. I'm extracting it. I mean, the scripture itself doesn't say this, but I'm extracting these uh, applications out of this passage. First of all, God's people, you and I, are not exempt from the troubles that afflict all mankind. If a drought comes, it doesn't rain on top of our house and not rain everywhere else, you know, normally. If there's a drought, we're in a drought. If there's a famine, we're in a famine. If there's pestilence, we're in a pestilence. If there's war, we're in a war. If there's accidents, illness, whatever it is, they all happen to Christians as well as to non-Christians. Being a child of God does not exempt us from the normal issues of life. The difference is God walks with us 
through those issues. And that's what makes the testimony as to the power of God and the reality of God. I know that there are certain groups who try to claim that there is, that God somehow uh, gives us health and wealth and we never have to suffer the things that the world has to suffer. But uh, David didn't know that and neither did Moses and neither did Jesus or any of the other people of the scripture. So, you know, I don't know where they got it, but they didn't get it out of the Bible. It's good wishful thinking, you know. Secondly, as Christians, we actually suffer additional problems that the people of the world may not suffer. Special temptations, special tribulations, because we war with the unholy trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are at war with us. And their desire is to destroy us. They want to destroy the world. When I say they, I'm talking about the kingdom of darkness that empowers the world, the flesh, and then, of course, Satan himself is behind it all. So, this being acknowledged, we still have to face or we still have to seek God's face in every trial and tribulation that comes along to make sure that God hasn't allowed it to get our attention. It's like, dummy, wake up. You know, the old man and his mule. Well, yeah, you know, the mule will do what I want him to do, but first you've got to get his attention with a two-by-four, you know. And, and sometimes God allows difficult times in our life because he's trying to get our attention because he's trying to point out something in our lives that we need to have confessed and removed from our lives. Certainly there are lessons concerning faith and trust and dependence upon God in every difficulty we face, you know, whether God is trying to get our attention per se in that thing or, or, or simply we're going along with everybody else in the problem, we, we do learn faith and trust and dependence in it all. But it could be that God is trying to get us to account for sin in our lives to wake up that a particular way we're living and a particular thing we're practicing is evil in his sight. And it's severed communication. It's severed fellowship with him. And, you know, sometimes we're so hardened that we don't even realize that our, our prayers are not being heard because there's sin in our lives. God will not ignore unconfessed sin. He will deal with it. In this passage in 2 Samuel, we find at least three points that are important for us to note. Firstly, there's no indication as to when this drought occurs. It doesn't tell us that it happened early, middle, or late in David's lane, uh, reign. Sometimes because it's in chapter 21, we assume it's late in his reign. The only thing we do know from the passage is that David had already accorded Mephibosheth special blessing. So we know, know it occurred after that. But that was fairly early in David's reign. After he became king, he wanted to do something favorable for Jonathan because of the covenant he had with Jonathan. And so he searched around, found Mephibosheth, brought him in, and began to make him a part of his palace you know, entourage. And so that may have been fairly early in the reign. Secondly, God patiently waited year after year after the fact of what Saul had done to bring Israel to task for this sin. Why did God wait so long? Why did God do things for David and Israel in the interim? Well, first of all, it would have done no good 
to have done it while Saul was king because Saul wasn't attentive to God anyway. Saul would have said, oh, it's not my problem. It's not my fault. There's no sin here. He would have just thought of it as one of the vicissitudes of life. And then after Saul was dead, you might say, well, if Saul's responsible and he's dead, he's paying for it now, so why does Israel have to do with it, deal with it? And that's because the debt of sin remained because it was a national sin, not just the personal sin of Saul. The covenant between the Gibeonites and Israel had been made by Joshua on behalf of the whole nation. Joshua and the elders had made this covenant in the name of Israel, in the name of the Lord God. As king, Saul had violated the covenant in the name of Israel. And with Israelite troops, he had killed the Gibeonites. Thus, God had to wait until a godly king was ruling in Israel. And then he had to wait further until the godly king, king would actually be quiet enough to actually hear what God had to say to him. Think about it. I mean, in our study so far of David's life, a lot was going on in David's life. It was pretty tumultuous much of the time in his life. Thirdly, even after the drought began, it took three years before David finally went to God and said, what's going on here? You know, what's the problem? Why do we have this drought? Which indicates that he knew God controlled these things and that God could do something about them, right? Which is another encouragement to us to be people of prayer. Even though we might say, oh, the national events now are out of hand. The international events are out of hand. There's nothing we can do about France. There's nothing we can do about Saddam. There's nothing we can do about Osama bin Laden and you know, da, 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 da. Yeah, there is. We can pray. And we can pray and trust that God will intervene because he's totally in charge of all that is transpiring. So David finally heard the wake-up call. And he went to God and said, Lord, what is it that you have allowed this drought to come upon your people? Because you're the one who blesses your people. You're the one who meets their needs. And if we follow you, you, you minister to us and, and, and you bless us. What's going on? This is the only place in Scripture where we read about this violation of, this, of the covenant between Israel and Gibeon. It's not mentioned anywhere else. And so we don't even know about it until God brings a drought to wake up Israel. It's not recorded earlier. It's not recorded during the reign of Saul that Saul did this thing, which helps us further to understand that so much of what is in Scripture is here, well, all of what's in Scripture is here to teach us something, not to just give us a day-by-day, you know, day, week-by-week, month-by-month chronology of what went on. We remember that as Israel was entering the land, you remember all the way back to the book of Joshua? And Israel had crossed the Jordan and they'd had victory at Jericho. And then they'd gone on and uh, ultimately had victory at Ai after a bit of a problem there. And, and then they were ready to proceed into the highlands. And that's when this delegation of individuals showed up. Remember? They came and, and, and they were all dressed in raggedy clothes and they had decayed food and, and water that was already turning green and 
uh, all, all this stuff so that it, it looked like they had traveled for many, many, many weeks from a distant land. And they claimed that they were a delegation from far off and that they'd heard of the fame of God and how he'd led them out of Egypt and given them victory over the Amorites. And, and they just wanted to be allied to such a great God and such a great people. And so they had traveled all this distance to make that alliance. Let's, let's pick up at that point in the narrative in Joshua uh, chapter 9 because it's really an interesting story and it's been a while since we looked at it last. Joshua chapter 9 reading at verse 12. They're, they're pointing out that obviously we had to have come from a long distance because it says, this our bread was warm when we took it for our provisions out of our houses on the day we left to come join you. Now, behold, it is dry and has become crumbled. These wineskins which we filled were new, and behold, they are torn. These clothes and our sandals are worn out because of the very long journey. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask counsel of the Lord. What an indictment. <laughs> If that isn't a glowing warning that shines off the pages of Scripture, did not ask counsel of the Lord. We must ask counsel of the Lord at all times and in all situations because that's the only way to stay on the right path. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. And it came about at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were neighbors and were living within the land. In fact, they were the very next people that they were supposed to conquer. Then the sons of Israel set out and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and Kephara and Biroth and Kirith-Jerim. And the sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Notice, had sworn to them by the name of the Lord. Without consulting the Lord, they had sworn an oath in the name of the Lord. Dangerous stuff. Dangerous stuff. And uh, the whole congregation grumbled against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the whole congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. This we will do to them. Even let them live, lest the wrath be upon us for the oath which we swore to them. They knew they couldn't violate the oath or there would be God to deal with. The leader said to them, let them live. So they became hewers of wood and drawers of water for the whole congregation, just as the leaders had spoken to them. So the covenant had been made. The covenant is irrevocable at that point. Apparently Saul had become so zealous in his desire to build the kingdom that he had a plan to eliminate all of the Canaanites remaining in the land of Israel. Remember, after the conquest was all over and the lands were divided amongst the tribes, Scripture tells us there were pockets of Canaanites all through the land because the Israelites had failed to drive them out. And what we discover here is that Saul was particularly concerned with this group of Canaanites because they lived in his home tribal area. They lived in Benjamin. Remember, Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. And these cities are in Benjamin. So he obviously picked on them first because they're nearby. Thus he began a 
final solution, which resulted in the deaths of many Gibeonites. We're not told how many. You know, was, were a few hundred, a few thousand? We're not told how he did it, how many died, or when he did it. Just that he did it is all we know. Now, the Gibeonites, or the Hivites, which is the, uh, the national name for the people who were... The Gibeons were, Gibeonites were from Gibeon, but you'll notice there were three other cities there as well. So the, the national name is Hivites. So the Hivites here had tricked Joshua and the elders. I mean, their trick had, had succeeded. Can you trick the Lord? No. Can you trick his people if they don't seek the Lord? Yes. What a lesson. And Israel had made a covenant. Israel had not sought the counsel of the Lord before they made this agreement. So what did God say? Well, you didn't seek me, therefore I don't count the oath. No, God doesn't say that. He says, you made an oath in my name. It is valid regardless of the fact you didn't seek my advice, you didn't seek my counsel. Therefore, it remains and you're responsible to honor it. Think about that now in terms of modern oaths we may take, vows we may take. Whether, you know, it's, it's like the person, you've heard the person who came and tried to get uh, a pastor to uh, you know, support his idea of, of divorcing this particular woman he married because he said, well, I, I married her out of God's will. Oh, really? Well, too bad. You took a vow in his name. She is your wife. This highlights the fact that although God will forgive us of our sin, we may still have to live with the natural consequences of that sin. Saul had broken the covenant and sinned against both God and the Gibeonites. And only blood could purge the land of what is called blood guilt. Now let me read to you why that is true. Back in Numbers chapter 35, reading at verse 33. Numbers 35, 33. So you shall not pollute the land in which you are, for blood pollutes the land, and no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it except by the blood of him who shed it. And you shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. A statement of the eminence of God. He was there amongst his people. Therefore, they could not pollute the land because he dwelt there. And the only way the pollution could be rid, expunged, was for the blood of the one who committed it to be shed. Put yourself in David's place now. David has heard from the Lord that this is the problem, and he has to go to Canaanites living in the land and deal with this problem. Imagine the chagrin that David felt as the king of a mighty empire and to have to go to this non-Israelite people, this, this core of Canaanites living in the land, and he has to relate to them, this is what God has said to me, and I've got to have you to help me deal with this problem. Not what David wanted to do. 
But it's another statement of how David was a man, although a mighty man, was a man of humility. And he was willing to do this. Now, whether he personally walked before the Gibeonites, which is what it sounds like here, or whether he set his emissaries to actually do the negotiation makes no difference. It was done in his name. And so he asked the Gibeonite elders, what would they accept as atonement for Saul's sin against them? And what is interesting is God uses their response to remind David of this passage in November, in November, in Numbers chapter 35. They invented a new book in the Bible. <laughs> now, to what extent did the Gibeonites know Yahweh? Now, to what extent did they walk with God? To what extent did they know the scripture? We don't know. I, I hope to believe that many of the Gibeonites, through the witness of Israel, had come to know the Lord and were beginning to become part of God's people, but, but we don't know that. We do know that in the sixth verse, there is a, they do refer to Yahweh, the, the Gibeonites do. In the sixth verse, they say, we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. So they use the name Yahweh twice in that particular passage. Probably after some consultation amongst themselves, they finally came to the decision to request seven of Saul's male descendants to execute as expiation or payment for the massacre of their people. Seven, obviously, seven is the, uh, what we consider the perfect number of God. Seven were to be given, and they were to be hung on stakes or gibbets and left hanging, which is not the normal way things were done in, in Israel, as a reminder that God takes very seriously the violations of covenants made in His name. So it, it's incumbent upon David to choose. Can you imagine how difficult that's be? You now become the person to choose which of Saul's descendants are going to die. Well, he exempts Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son Mephibosheth. He exempts him because he had sworn to Jonathan that he would bless the house of Jonathan forever. And therefore, he could not submit this particular, unfortunately, in the passage there's two Mephibosheths. He, he will not submit this Mephibosheth to this shame. He had made that covenant, and, and you can read it in 1 Samuel chapter 20. So instead, he selects two of Saul's surviving sons, sons by a concubine whose name is Rizpah, which means glowing stone. And then he also selects five grandsons, sons of Saul's daughter Miriab. Four things that we can see in this passage which are interesting. Firstly, one of the two sons of Saul was named Armoni. And that word comes from the root which means citadel. I don't know if you name your kid Castle. <laughs> hey, Castle, come here. <laughs> but what is interesting is you look in the concordance and this is the only time Armoni shows up in the entire scripture. Just this one time. So he makes his brief show on history. Not one to be uh, too excited about, of course, if you're Armoni. Secondly, there is another Mephibosheth here. 
This is one of Saul's sons by the concubine, a half-uncle to the Mephibosheth that David is protecting, the younger one. Thirdly, Saul's daughter Miriam. This is a very interesting person. You may not remember her, but let me just go back into the first book of Samuel. I'm going to read a couple of verses from chapter 18. You don't, don't need to go there. In verse 17, it says, Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Miriab. I will give her to you as wife. Only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, My hand shall not be against him, but let the hands of the Philistines be against him. In other words, he already wants to kill David, but he figured, why should I do it? Let the Philistines do it. And, and, but he makes David this to, to encourage him. He says, You go out there and you fight valiantly, you kill Philistines, and I'll give you Miriam. Then in verse 19, though, it says, and so it came about at the time when Miriam, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, then she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, as a wife. So this is a woman that was supposed to be David's. But Saul had reneged on his promise and married her to this man, Adriel. And so David, I, I don't think David is acting here out of vengeance here. I, I think he's glad he never married Miriam. Uh, I don't think that's it at all. He's just trying to find enough male relatives of Saul who are close enough to Saul, and, and these happen to be the ones. And then fourthly, since these were all certainly grown men, these weren't little kids because this is, you know, decades after the death of Saul, certainly, they probably had wives and had children. Think about it for a minute now. These seven had wives and children, probably. Notice how the suffering would spread. Saul's violation of God's law would produce tragedy beyond what he could have ever foreseen. The execution took place, we're told, at the time, uh, time of the barley harvest, which is approximately April. However, there was drought in the land at that time, so there probably wasn't much of a barley harvest. Well, next week we'll look at this person, Rizpah, mother of two of the boys. Uh, she is a very honorable woman, and we'll see what she does and how David will actually honor her in the midst of this, um, this tragedy.